welcome into the 3430 podcast. I am your host, John Thorpe, joined as always by Bobby Nemeth. Bobby, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. Yeah, just having a lazy Sunday, chilling out. Got to get a workout in earlier, some breakfast, and just taking it easy. There you go. And we've got kind of a split plate of baseball and basketball today. First half of the podcast, we'll be focusing on some baseball topics, kind of some follow-up on some of the things we've been talking about in the first two episodes, and then we'll move on to both the NBA and some college basketball towards the second half of the podcast. So we'll get a good variety of topics today. Yes, sir. I'm excited to get into basketball finally. I know we kind of promised that in our first episode and we haven't really we haven't really dove into it yet. And that's kind of your area of expertise. There's so been, there's I'm looking been so to much, kind of grow more. There's been so much baseball to talk about, but now now it's yes. really starting to slow down. <laughs> now we're gonna have to be uh looking <laughs> yeah, for, for things while, baseball related. But speaking of baseball, let's let's start out with just an update on how the lockout is going. You know, last week we went into a really deep dive on what the issues are on each side. And Bobby, I know you've been tracking over the last week what progress has been made by Nothing. each side. Like no progress. Um, I feel like we've gone backwards. So I made a statement last week about like we're not we're not going to miss regular season games i think we'll have an abbreviated spring training uh i think i'm wrong i think you were right it's we're kind of headed towards a situation where we're going to lose regular season games it doesn't seem like any side is going to budge anytime a counter proposal is made it's like it's very little headway last week the mlb was supposed to make a counter proposal and they didn't and instead of doing that they offered to hire a, a mediator to come in to get an agreement done between the two parties. So this is pretty unorthodox. It does happen. I think the NHL a couple years ago, they had a mediator come in. It's like an unbiased third party that comes in and they don't really make suggestions, but they just they listen to both sides and then they kind of offer up what they think sounds the fairest because it's completely unbiased. So that's what the mediator does. The NHL did that a couple of years ago and to success, got the parties together and they came up with an agreement to for their CBA. And baseball tried this back in 1994 and it obviously didn't work. If you don't know, in 1994, the players went on strike and they couldn't come up with an agreement on a new CBA. So they actually canceled. This happened in the middle of the Major League Baseball season. They canceled the rest of the season. There was no World Series. So if you look at back in like the history books, there is no World Series champion from 1994. And so that wasn't successful for baseball. And the players kind of feel that. And that's basically what the response was. They said, it's a joke. Like, this doesn't work for us. And even though MLB offered to hire a mediator, it is up to the union to agree to that. And they didn't. So they rejected that proposal to have a mediator come in and just responded basically saying, like, we're here to make a deal. It should be between the two parties. Let's get it done. And then MLB came back with, you know, their response. And it basically, it seems like a, a PR stunt for MLB. They're trying to come out to the public to say like, hey, we're in, um, we're making a, like a good conscious effort to get done. And the players are basically saying like, this is, this is a facade. This isn't to actually make an agreement happen. This is just to make yourself look better. So they're set to meet again next week. And Tuesday to Thursday, we'll see what happens. MLB, again, was supposed to make a counterproposal last week. They didn't. 
said again that they're supposed to make a counterproposal this week. We'll see if it happens. But as you said, what progress has been made? Um, negative, negative progress. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, and, and like you said earlier, we pretty much crossed the the point of no return in terms of the season right. having to be delayed, right? Yeah, it's kind of because it's in two like ten days actually. It, pitchers and catchers report, so it's like the official start of spring training is ten days from now. So like we're well beyond the point of things starting normally. So we're gonna lose at least a good amount of spring training, which will probably probably carry into the regular season. I would assume. Yeah. So my bet is looking better. Just third week yes. of April, so just to remind congratulations, you. Congratulations, John. <laughs> Thanks for being pessimistic and correct at the same time. Yeah, my initial uh, in the episode before that, I said June, May or June. So you know, I I need to revise I, that guess, but hope, it might I be somewhere not. between there. I hope not, but like it, it doesn't seem like either party likes each other, and either party really wants to budge. Uh, and we talked about the CBA last week, and a big push for the players is to secure wages and higher salaries just security in general for younger players that's their big push and major league baseball really doesn't seem to want to budge on that so man i really hope we don't lose regular season games that would be really detrimental to the sport which is already like third or fourth most popular sport in our country uh they're starting to build up a little bit but if this happens i mean it just kills it like it did in the 90s i really don't want to see that happen yeah yeah i agree it momentum is important and i feel like with all sports during covid it's been a little bit difficult to maintain momentum or you know you get it for stretches of time and then you get gets taken away from you and this is something mm -hmm. that the mlb can control it's it's it is within their yeah, control they can so they can so there is one thing that the players and owners agree about that i want to yes. get into because I saw you talking about it on social media this week, and mm -hmm. I had to stop you in your tracks because you said you, did not. you said something along the lines of everyone agrees on this, that this is good for all of us. And I had, I had to say, whoa, whoa, Bobby, slow down. We're going to need to unpack this on the podcast. So for our hot take of the day segment, we're going to talk about universal DH. So just for context, ever since I believe the 1970s, uh, mm, baseball has been broken up into American League and National League, where in the National League, the pitcher is the ninth batter. And in the American League, instead of having the pitcher pitch, you have a designated hitter, a DH. You mean hit. I meant hit, yes. Pitcher always Thank pitches, you. John. Thank you. Um, and so, and it's determined on whose home field you're playing on, you know, if, if a national league team is visiting an american league then they have to play by the american league rules and vice versa and so this is something that's been debated for probably the talk probably started what 10 years ago when people started I mean, really saying, probably since the conception okay so um, people started saying let's have a universal dh in both leagues and mm -hmm. let's stop this madness of having pitchers uh hit so bobby i want you to lay out your thoughts on a universal dh and why you I think mean, it's good for all of us it is good i mean it is good it's good for baseball and i think first and foremost it's what the players want so if we just take our own biases out of it as fans and observers that's what the players want so i think ultimately that's what's best for baseball is 
the players that play the game want this to happen. So that's my first point. Um, but the other point is pitchers, like pitchers don't want to really hit anymore. They're, it's a dime a dozen, like how many pitchers actually want to hit. Like you have maybe Zach Greinke, who's an American League team now, doesn't hit anyway. And like Madison Bumgarner, who loves hitting, but he's, again, he, they're few and far between. He's like the only person in a sea of people that want universal DH. So pitchers don't. They don't want to hit. It, you know, we talk about the popularity of the sport. Having nine proficient batters hitting in a lineup creates more offense and more entertainment than having eight and then just a guaranteed out. And that's what a pitcher is. If you don't watch a lot of baseball, if a pitcher is hitting, they basically do nothing at the plate. They're just a guaranteed out. That's just inefficient. It's it's pointless. And there are they can put down a bunt, which moves runners over. That's good for the game. They call that small ball. But really, in this day and age where we see nothing but walks and strikeouts and home runs, people aren't bunting. I mean, the sacrifice bunts and stolen bases are basically non-existent for the most part. So the game's evolving outside of that. I, I, there's still a place for that. That's a whole different discussion about small ball and, and kind of the state of the game now. But the point is, is that if we want the popularity of the sport to grow, we need to have more action. More action means more offense. Pitchers do not add that. They just don't. And if you want to see the most competitive balance, you have all nine batters capable of hitting in both leagues. And it makes it consistent. And it is one of those interesting things about the National League and the American League that other sports like don't have. So like the NFL, there's no rule changes between the AFC and NFC. NBA, there's no rule changes between the um, Eastern Conference and Western Conference. But in baseball, there is. So the American League has got different rules than the National League. That's kind of cool. Um, I've always liked that, but it's, it's something that I think has got to change. I don't. It's not needed anymore. It goes back to that kind of tradition that baseball fans have. The sport is better in many different facets by going to Universal DH. Also... It prevents a lot of injuries. It allows players in the field to take a day off while still being productive for their team. So a player that plays, let's say, uh, left field all the time on a Sunday day game where they played you know, 20 games in a row, they can take them out of left field and just plug them in the lineup and they can hit and then it preserves their body. I mean, baseball is 162 games. It's, it's a marathon and being able to be creative with your lineups to switch people in and out of on the field. And then DHing, um, it extends like the abilities of your players and the endurance and health of your players throughout the season. So those are kind of like the focus points on why DH is better. The, the players want it. Um, pitchers don't want to hit. It's more offense, more entertaining, and it's better overall, I believe, for the team and the players' health. So that's kind of that's kind of my stance on it right now. And I'm curious to see where yours is. You you feel like it ruins like the strategy of the game. So like, wh- where do you, where do you sit on that? Because you're kind of blasting me out on Twitter about it. Yeah. So here's here's the debut of us having a live debate in front of the listeners. So I could not disagree more. Uh, I and I am in the minority. I understand this, but this is a hill that I'm willing to die on publicly. I All think right. that. 
they should stick with the system that they have in having uh, pitchers hit in National League games. The reason why is because, you know, baseball in a lot of ways is like a game of chess where like each team is kind of making these moves to see what the other team does. And one of the huge parts of that, especially when you get uh, cross league play, is with the the pitcher batting ninth. It it completely changes a team's strategy on both both team sides. So, for instance, in the World Series, there are a lot of occasions where we know that in the World Series and in the playoffs, typically relief pitchers and starting pitchers pitch a shorter amount of time. Um, you're going to see a lot more of the bullpen come out during those really high leverage situations um, because you know every single at bat is just so much more valuable, especially towards the end of the game, than it is in the regular season because the teams are typically you know a lot more evenly matched. And so, what you have a lot of times in the World Series is you'll have a pitcher who's either the starter or maybe they're the first relief pitcher off the bullpen. Uh, they're just they're going through batters, you know, three three up, three out. And then they run into a situation where they don't have any offense going. And there's the manager is stuck in this dilemma of, do I take out this pitcher who's on fire and helping us keep the score low in lieu of having a one-time hitter come up for one at-bat, and then that hitter, unless they think that hitter can pitch, which very, very, very rarely can they, um, they, they get one at bat and then they're done for the game and then you've lost another hitter on your bench because the next inning comes up, you need to put a new relief pitcher in. And so it's this huge gamble of, are we going to create enough offense by putting, you know, one at, add, essentially adding one at bat to our lineup in lieu of a pitcher who's really on a good roll and putting um, the other team's offense at bay? And this happens every year in the playoffs, especially in the World Series, when you have American League teams that are not used to this and they're really having to strategize around it. It just it's a huge like chess move that the managers are looking at each other and they're saying, you know, who's going to score first? It's like a game of chicken in some ways. And who's going to take out their pitcher first in lieu of this pinch hitter in the ninth spot? And. I just love that competitive element and that strategic element of it. And I think the game becomes, especially in the playoffs, becomes a lot more dull when you don't have to be thinking oh, about those gonna, chess moves. I'm going to disagree with that. All right. Well, why? What's your main disagreement? I mean, that's very like a, like a cerebral point of view on that, right? is that it becomes dull because you're not actively thinking about what the strategies the managers are thinking about. I will let you continue. I want to let you continue. I, I mean, and then I will add in after the fact. It's personal to me because maybe it's the way I watch baseball, but like there's been many occasions where the team that I'm rooting for has a pitcher who, like I said, is on a roll. And then, you know, they get the last out at the top of the inning and then they get taken out for a pinch hitter in the bottom of the inning and you just have this like <laughs> this frustration because you're like no they did not just take out 
you know, their best relief pitcher or one of their best relief pitchers in the sixth inning for, you know, honestly, the pinch hitters guy that in a lot of situations is batting below 250, because if they're a good hitter, they wouldn't be a pitch hitter in the first place. So like, yes, they're going to hit more often than a pitcher would, but is the incremental benefit in terms of getting on base so much higher that it it saves you know it creates more offense than the offense that you might be giving up to the other team by putting in a worse pitcher the next inning and i'm sure that there's been studies on like the probabilities of each side and i actually would be really interested to see like what's more beneficial a, a pitcher that's kind of on a roll or a pinch hitter that bats 240 coming into the ninth slot for one at bat i'd be interested to see what's more beneficial i'm gonna gonna tell you right now without a paper next to me is that a pitcher on a roll is more beneficial to a team than uh, a pinch hitter coming up that might be a little hot why a pitcher on a roll shuts down the whole team so then so being able to keep them in keeps that best option for that team there doesn't pigeonhole them into choosing offense before that now it totally it it just depends you need to talk about this chess match between are they going to take the pitcher out or are they going to leave him in to hit it depends on the score of the game right and so that's how you have to weigh it out and i'm not saying these nuances and these strategies aren't a uh, fun part of the game they're not an important part of the game but what I will say is that for competitive balance and I think the evolution of sport, you want the best players on the field at all times. And in that format and that scenario that you're talking about, you burn through all of these pitchers and all of these pinch hitters and all of these players through double switches and things like that. So if you have a game that goes on for however many innings, you, you basically have like the bottom of the barrel players on the field because basically because of that rule but that's what because there's no universal dh that's what makes it sorry go ahead and i i see what you're saying but what my point is is like that's not that's not what i believe is best for the game and the evolution and pushing the game forward you want the best players on the field at all times not only for entertainment purposes but for your chances to win and the only thing, I mean, many things, but one of the things getting in the way of that is, is the pitcher hitting because you have to, you have to choose offense before the pitcher, really. I mean, I think it's more beneficial to me as a fan for many years to have a pitcher in the game. That's just mowing them down. But if you're down by one run, you're not going to have that pitcher go up because you need to put somebody in the game that can potentially get a hit and a pitcher cannot. So again, it goes back to that point. Pitchers are just, there's no point for them to hit. They, they want to pitch, let them do what they do best and pitch. That's, that's kind of how I feel about that. So you talk about not wanting to see the bottom of the bench, essentially, uh, and wanting the most talent on the field at all times. My counter to that is, if you keep in place a system where there's that potential of having to play, having to burn through your bullpen, having to burn through your bench, that increases the drama because there's something at stake now. It's not just like, oh, you know, we're going to stick with the same nine guys the entire game. 
Like there's actually well, risk in making this decision. There's, there's a other huge reasons trade off. Substitutions. There's other reasons to sub people in, which makes sense outside of just pinch hitting. But I want to increase the amount of like potential substitutions and the costs and benefits of that rather than kind of I see as like flattening the talent on both sides. Because anything too is they can still pinch hit the DH theoretically for different matchups. So you still have that in play. You always have people getting substituted for speed if they're on base, pinch running. But then you also have defensive substitutions at the end of the game. So that's not going to, you're not going to get away from substitutions. I guess my point is like, you're not going to blow through them all within nine innings. Like you, you see a lot of that in the playoff games now because they're always switching pitchers out and pinch hitting because of the pitcher is up on the third spot in the third hole the next inning. And so by the time you hit the ninth inning, it's like you're only seeing half of the starting lineup at the game at that point. And it's an interesting thing. It's a dynamic of the game, it, but it'd be better. <laughs> it'd be better have the best players still on the field that they want on the field in that nine inning span. But the playoffs and are a, you're not seeing that in the playoffs. The playoffs are like a, a game of attrition. It's like, what team can go the longest and have, you know, and like has the deepest bench and has the deepest bullpen. Like those are things that you would be taking away by having a universal DH. I'm not saying that you're never going to play your whole. I don't think whole, you'd be taking that away at your all. Your whole I don't roster. Think take away. No, it, it is because you're not going to use as many players if you are sticking with a DH 80% of the time. And again, that's that's only for that's only for DHing and for pinching for the pitcher. Again, like I said, you can still substitute players in for many different reasons outside of just putting a bat in the ninth hole, and that's that's what you see with pitchers. You're just putting a bat in the ninth hole, and that's there's no rhyme or reason other than just getting somebody that might be able to put the bat on the ball. But there's an interesting domino effect if you put in a pinch hitter for the pitcher, then it means you can't use that person later on in the game and you you can't right. use them as a pinch runner you can't use somebody else for the dh or somebody else for the catcher like it just adds these downstream effects that make the game like more costly for for the team making those substitutions i mean it just feels like a you're pigeoning hole it's a pigeonhole for the flexibility of your lineup because of that it's almost a given you got to throw somebody out there after the fifth inning Every time the ninth spot comes up, you got to throw somebody out there whether you want to or not, just because you want to get some offense in there. But what I'm saying is you should reward the team that has the most flexibility, that has the, the most options in their back pocket. And the way we see it right now, like it, it, this isn't statistically proven by anything as well, but the National League inherently inherently has an advantage in these matchups because the American League doesn't play with their their pitcher batting. So when you see these matchups in the playoffs in the World Series, that's the only time that you would see an NL and an AL team play. The NL inherently has an advantage in that right because they're used to playing with only um, eight hitters and then one pitcher. They're used to going through that dynamic. And then when you go to the American League park and NL all of a sudden just gets to put a bat in there where they normally don't have. And so you kind of see, again, inherently an advantage on the NL. And it really shouldn't be that way. It should be consistent all around the board. 
And these are, again, nuances and things of the game that have been in plays for, I mean, well, I guess technically now for 50 years almost. Um, we're used to that. And baseball, again, is different in many ways as a sport. And I like to celebrate that. But this is something that we got, in my mind, we got to let go of. Uh, and I think it's, it's going to be for the betterment of the sport and, and the players in general. Well, we, we can agree to disagree on this one. I don't think you've, yes. you've sold me. Uh, we'll move on. But I, I think that it, it, it just depends on what you view as entertaining. Um, and I think we view the entertaining aspect a little bit different on this issue because yeah, you're well, right that the universal DH, you're going to get more hits, you're going to get more yeah. runs, more offense. But it it does take away that chess match that is also builds the drama if you have something invested in the team and if you don't want to see them take out a particular player. Well, what I will say, too, just to kind of end this thought is, you know, we have to look at this as, is it something that is good for me or is it something that's good for the game? And when you think about the average audience that watches the game, overall audience are bringing in different people into watching the sport i believe universal dh adds more to the game and pushes the game forward and that's that's an important thing for me too you know selfishly there's rules and things that i'd like to stay in place but it might not be best for overall for the sport moving forward and i feel like universal dh is best for the sport moving forward and i will clarify too if we didn't before this is happening they're gonna they agreed on this um this is happening moving forward so we will see i guess we're going to see a different side of this. And we saw it in 2020 um, during the pandemic when they had an abbreviated season, there was a universal DH. And um, I, I didn't, I didn't see a lot of negativity coming out of it. In fact, that kind of sparked the conversation of saying, Oh, we should do this every single year. So I'm just going to, I'll leave that little bit there to end my little piece. Sounds good. On, on a follow-up episode, we'll have to look at what the stats were during that season where they put in the universal sure. DH and see what the, what the actual effect was on offense. Sure. We'll uh, we'll move on from there, and we will now move on to basketball. So in the NBA, yes. it is trade season. The deadline is February 10th, coming up this Thursday. Um, and Bobby and I were talking about this before we started recording. It, it feels like it's been kind of a slow, slower rumor period yeah, slow. compared to past years. And I think... I mean, I can go into detail later about like why I think that is. I think there are some changes to the league that have made the trade rumors a little slower. But um, just curious, like what what rumors are you um, paying attention to? Are you following the Ben Simmons saga? You know, what, say, yeah, what kind I of mean, is interesting to you at leading really up to the this only deadline? Thing. That's really the only like big piece that's out there in the big uh, conversation that's out there in the NBA trade deadline is the Ben Simmons and James Harden talk, but it keeps getting debunked now. Like Steve Nash, who's the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets, which James Harden plays for, it keeps coming out and saying, no, we're not trading him. We're not going to trade him. And then everybody keeps saying that he wants to be in Brooklyn, which is kind of contradictory because then other reports say he doesn't want to be in Brooklyn and so on. I don't know. But that's like the biggest like uh, blockbuster trade, I guess that could happen is the Ben Simmons and James Harden trade. But outside of that, it's been like really quiet, like super quiet, usually around like within a week of the trade deadline. When's the trade deadline again, John? Thursday. So it's, it's Thursday. So we're four and a half days. days. Yeah. Four and a half days. 
there's like there's usually like a huge circulation of news and rumors and projected trades and this team needs this and this team's on but there's nothing it's so quiet which is kind of a shame it doesn't give us a whole lot to talk about there are some things out there and some things i'd like to see i don't think are going to happen like i i'm not as invested in the nba as john is but i am still a fan and i still pay attention pretty much all sports um and one of the things that i notice is like the lakers this year it doesn't work like they're will experiment with Russell Westbrook doesn't work. And so for me, as like a fan of LeBron James from the outside, and I <clears throat> I just like rooting for him. I just think he's just such an incredible player. So like I want to see the Lakers succeed. That doesn't mean I'm a Lakers fan, but I still want to see him succeed. I want to see LeBron succeed. And right now, like they're not. They're not even they're really not a playoff team. And uh, this whole experiment with Westbrook, it, it doesn't work. Everybody sees that, so I would like to see them make a move, but I haven't seen anything. I mean, even trading him away or adding something to get them to click in some way, shape, or form. I mean, that's what I would like to see, and I've heard little talks about it, but when I go through and read articles and Twitter, there's nothing about it. It doesn't sound like they're trying to make any trade, so I don't know. I think for the Lakers specifically, not to go down a rabbit hole, but uh, they have three massive contracts to three players, and then they don't really have any of those mid-tier contracts and what we're seeing in the they trade everybody away well what we're seeing in the nba now is like it, it's very hard to construct a trade with somebody who's at that max salary in the 30 to 40 mm -hmm. million plus range and then a bunch of guys on minimums and because that's the structure of the lakers roster right now and so you know it's very rare to see like a four for one deal where you trade four minimum guys for one mid-tier contract you know like because just in terms of roster spots it doesn't work so the lakers put themselves into a corner this off the past off season by putting all their eggs in three baskets lebron yeah. davis and westbrook and, and now they have westbrook and now they have no tradable contracts because nobody wants the minimum guys and nobody wants russell westbrook for 44 million dollars <laughs> no and they're not no, going to I mean, trade lebron or ad so they're just stuck right yeah they messed up in the offseason making that trade they gave all their pieces away for somebody that basically brings them no value and a lot of money costs a lot of money on top of that right it doesn't make sense to me i mean i mean what so you're a huge blazers fan so we can talk about that obviously a big shout out to john he was invited on to two separate podcasts this week to talk about the Blazers. Do you want to shout that out real quick? Sure. So I was on a daily Blazers podcast, uh, Locked On Blazers with Mike Richmond. Uh, he had a, a guest listener episode that was pretty fun, and I just did a like six-minute segment on the state of the team. And then uh, the other one that I was on was the Unbiased Blazers podcast, uh, which was a also a episode that was kind of a a mix of a bunch of different listeners uh, reacting to a trade that the Blazers made on Friday afternoon. So it was really fun so to be on both of those. So the trade was uh, the Blazers traded away Norman Powell and Robert Covington to the Los Angeles Clippers for Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, Keon Johnson, and a 2025 second round pick that LA had from Detroit. Um, and it was that 
is really a very fancy way of saying it was a salary dump. Um, yeah. Norman Powell was just signed to a five-year contract in the offseason by the Blazers. So he had a lot of money Damn, left on his a deal. Turnaround. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, he had a lot of money left on his deal and a lot of years. And the reality that we found from this trade is just that um, it's really hard to get off of a long-term contract right after it was signed. You know, it'd be completely different if Norm had like two years left on his deal, one year left on his deal. But the fact that he had four years after this season teams out there the point that i made on one of the other podcasts was like a lot of gms in the league don't even last more than five years so if you're thinking about it from a gm standpoint and it like a selfish self-preservation standpoint why would you make a trade for somebody that's going to be on your roster for so long if you yourself are not sure if you're going to be around three years from now four years from now you know like the yeah interesting move by the clippers the clock in the nba is is shorter i think than some other sports and maybe we can debate that but like if you're planning if you're planning beyond i would say three years like you start getting into some really murky waters that are just like very difficult to even know where your team's going to be at and so yeah, that, isn't the isn't the max contract only four years in the NBA? Uh, you can do a yeah, you can do it's basically a five year contract. Yeah, you can do a max extension for four additional years after the year that you're currently in. Yeah, so that's not that long at all. In comparison, baseball signs players to like 13 year deals. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think on average, basketball players also just don't their careers are a little shorter than the typical baseball player. Right. I don't, I should fact check that, but just no, they thinking are. off they are. the top of my head, you know, once you get past like 32 years old in the NBA, there's very few That's people it. that are still playing. Yeah. I think um, just to quickly jump in and you're talking about service time. I think like the average MLB player plays like five years and the NBA is like, three to four years and NFL it's only like two years Mm -hmm. yeah and that kind of makes sense like in terms of how much your body is taking a beating through the sport that you play Um, basketball is is it's so funny like the biggest joke in basketball is it's a non-contact sport but you ask any NBA player about their feelings on that I'm sure they'd have some some strong opinions Yeah, yeah. yeah but anyway yeah the the Blazers move really got fans pretty heated uh, because Norman Powell is a really good player. Uh, He's a starting caliber player. His contract is actually just in terms of annual value is a very reasonable amount for the talent that he has and the statistics that he produces. So I think fans thought they were going to get a lot more trading him. And I tended to agree. Like I I thought they were going to get more, but I, I have to, trust that the blazers gm went out there and Ooh, trusting <laughs> yeah it's trusting dang- the front it's dangerous thing to do but All i right. have to trust that they went out made a lot of phone calls and there were probably very few suitors to say yeah we'll take all of norman powell's contracts for five more years when he becomes 32 years old you know like he must have just not found much and so i'm curious then why like, what's the point of this salary dump like what are they what, what value are they trying to get back? Are they looking to sign somebody in the offseason if they're dumping off that contract? Yeah, so 
the first priority that they had, unfortunately, was saving money. Um, you know, it, it always comes back, just like last week, it always comes back to billionaires wanting to save a couple million dollars. Uh, and that's the unfortunate reality yes. of American sports. Um, but they, they needed to get below the luxury tax line. They were about $3 million over. And conveniently okay. enough, this deal saved them $4 million. How, how funny Somebody's is that? Somebody's crunching the numbers. Um, so, you know, the basically the instructions from the ownership group was get below the luxury tax for this season. Okay, all right. That makes because sense. the team is awful, and why would you pay a luxury tax for an awful team? I mean, that makes sense. But it was a little bit more egregious than that in that there were other avenues that they could have taken to get under the luxury tax. They didn't have to trade Norman Powell to do that. They could have traded some other contracts. Um, like who? Like, like in your ideal scenario, what is their, what is their mock-up to get below that I luxury think it, tax threshold? Yeah, if that was the only goal, they could have tried to trade Robert Covington, who made $13 million, uh, but he's an expiring contract, so he's not. He's a free agent this season, off-season. Mm -hmm. He makes $13 million. They literally could have found anyone out there who makes $10 million or less, um, who's probably a worse player, but it accomplishes that goal, and you get something back for you know, a player that is going to be a free agent anyway. Like That would be the most simple way to do it. But I think the reason that they packaged uh, Robert Covington onto this deal is because they needed something to convince the Clippers to take on all of Norman Powell's five years. Um, and right. I, I should mention that the Clippers are owned by the wealthiest owner in the NBA, which is Paul uh, Allen, right? Steel, Steve Ballmer. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. So his, his friend uh, from Microsoft. So Ballmer is one of the richest people in the world. I think he's top 10. Um, so he's good. As a result of this deal, he his luxury tax payment is going to be absurd. He's going to be paying about a hundred million dollars in luxury tax payment next year. Uh, yeah, is he worth like a hundred billion? Like he's yeah. fine. Um, but what's funny is that the, you know, there are teams in the NBA whose actual salary uh, cap is less than a hundred million. So he's paying tax worth more than, mo than some rosters in the league. And that just kind of, it's like, wouldn't it be nice to be a billionaire that yeah, that's a wild statistic. has a hundred billion dollars and can essentially pay for two teams is kind of what it comes down to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at least he's willing to pay taxes on something. A lot of smart people out there that I listen to say the biggest advantage in sports is ownership. You know, if you have owners like Steve Ballmer who are willing to pay an absurd amount of taxes for sure. Um, to get these rosters, to get people like Norman Powell and be on that end of a salary dump, that that's the biggest advantage you have. Because I mean, among among a lot of things, but yeah, you're, I think you're totally right. Yeah, and and the Blazers right now, for those of you that don't know, they were owned by Paul Allen. He passed away in 2018, and oh, that's his Paul Allen thing. His sister Jody took over uh, the estate, and there is a lot of speculation that she's looking to sell the team in the near future. And by the near future, I mean, two to three years. Um, they're, they're probably going to wait until the next NBA TV deal comes out, which is going to be, I think 2025. 
maybe a little bit sooner, um, and then basically cash in. Because what we've seen with Jody Allen is she's been selling off all of Paul Allen's assets for the last uh, four years, ever since he okay. passed away. She's getting rid of it, huh? Yeah, and, and the Blazers and the Seahawks are some of his last remaining assets. Um, and just the behavior of the franchise and the front office has, of both teams, to be honest, there's a lot of parallels between the Blazers and the Seahawks, is the team is not interested in spending money. Uh, they're not interested in paying any of these luxury taxes. And that signals that they're looking to sell because why put more money into something if you're getting prepared to hand it off to somebody else, you know? So it's yeah. it's a sad reality. It's a business at the end of the day, right? Yeah. And and right now, Blazers fans are rightly upset that the this move, this trade just in a vacuum doesn't bring back much basketball talent. I mean, we, we haven't talked about the three players that they got back, but in short, those three players are not uh, going to add a lot in terms of wins. To be, but that wasn't the point, right? Kind. That's not the point. Yeah, the, the point was so that a billionaire could save a couple million bucks. So do the Blazers just for the next whatever many years until it, they're sold? Do, like what, they just live in mediocrity? Is that kind of the future of the Blazers in? I think that's the fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's yeah, kind of been what's way. gone on ever since Paul Allen died. You know, he was one of those rare owners who was truly a fan of the team and he spent extra money you know extra in quotation marks of course like of course you can spend whatever you want you're a billionaire but you know he he definitely put more money into the team than other owners would have in different points of time in the last um 30 40 years but um you know ever since he died it, it's been very clear we're not going to put extra money into this team uh, we're kind of going to scrape by and keep them as like a low playoff team so that we can sell some playoff tickets, but we're not really going to push all of our chips in. Uh, so where does that, where does that leave Damian Lillard then? If he, if this is the future of the franchise, does he want to waste three years of his prime in mediocrity just because he's loyal to Portland? Like, do you think he, he breaks that vow or whatever that he made and uh, accepts a trade? Like so where does that go? Yeah, I mean, I think Dame is in a tough spot because he's his brand is loyalty. Like, right. It's not just, oh, I want to stay in Portland because I, I like the city or my family is here. Like, it actually goes like deeper than that in that he was a four year college guy out of a small school that nobody ever, ever heard of. He he was kind of that story of like. You know, no, none of the blue chip schools recruited him. Uh, nobody took him seriously, yada, yada, yada. And like, but he stayed at a four year college. He got his degree and he made it, quote unquote, uh, through being loyal and working hard. And then he got to Portland and that narrative and that story kind of continued throughout his career. Mm -hmm. You know, his first few years, he played with LaMarcus Aldridge, who was the the best player on the team and an all-star and so then lamarcus aldridge left and everyone's like well now it's dame's team but dame needs another superstar another all-star to play with and 
that didn't really happen. And the longer that that's gone on, everyone said, Dame, you need to leave. And he's kind of doubled down on this whole loyalty thing and said, no, like I'm, I'm about the grind. <laughs> you know, I'm about, I mean, it's almost about his own fault, making it harder, you know, taking the hard road essentially. And he's called out some other NBA stars on the fact that they just bounce around team to, you know, chase titles. Essentially. I think he said something like, yeah, I mean, that's chasing kind of titles. nature, right? And, and so now if you think about it from his point of view, like, he's put his neck out on the line by his whole reputation is I'm not going to leave. I'm going to be loyal. I'm not going to be like those other superstars who just leave after two years. So if he then demands out now, it's like everyone's going to view him a different way. And his brand is all of a sudden juxtaposed. I don't think so. I think that I think he'd be fine if he was traded to like hypothetically, let's say a Ben Simmons Lither trade, right? He goes to the Sixers. They win the finals. Nobody cares. Nobody's going to care about it. It's going to care about him winning. But I but do think we talk about care. him doubling down. I think about <laughs> doubling down and him caring. I think the fact that the Bucks won the title last year, where Giannis was one of those guys that stayed loyal to a small market team in Milwaukee, and they just continuously chipped away and put pieces around him, and finally they broke through and beat those super teams. I feel like that was probably a huge motivator for him and to sticking with Portland because he's already that guy. And he's like, look, Giannis did it. I can do it, but he ain't, he ain't Giannis. You know what I mean? Like that situation is different, two different ownership groups. So I don't know. He's got to figure it out. I think it'll be to his own detriment to stay in Portland. That's an unbiased opinion. Obviously you're, you're a big Blazers fan. You feel differently. You're more educated on like a whole situation, but from somebody like outside perspective, looking in, he needs to get out of there. I don't I don't necessarily disagree. I think my critique of him is he should have been a little more firm with the front office a few years ago. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of drama this last summer about Mm -hmm. is he going to ask out? He's unhappy. Um, And the outcome, essentially, at least what's known publicly, was that he kind of went to the front office and he said, hey, like, you got to make it better now. Like now I'm putting my foot down and I'm saying you got to improve the team because time is not on my side anymore. And, you know, you, now you need to listen to me. I'm going to flex my superstar muscle. And my my criticism of Dame is I think he should have done that three years ago. Um, and it's a little late. It's a little too late. Yeah. But it, it still it goes back to that ownership thing, because it's like if Paul Allen was still alive, I think Paul Allen would have listened to that three years ago. It's a little different, right? I, I think you're right. And um, I think he's just kind of stuck in a situation he can't control. Right. Uh, so outside of the Blazers, what what other moves do you see? Do you Are you hearing anything out there for any contending teams? I mean, anybody that's on the bubble, anybody that's looking to push themselves above? Like, is I feel like I haven't heard a whole lot. Like, what kind of news are you getting? Yeah, I, I mean, we had a, a rare Sunday trade today uh, that wasn't a huge, uh, you know, like a huge news piece, but the Cleveland Cavaliers got Karis Levert from the Indiana Pacers. And the Pacers are kind of in a very similar spot to the Blazers, actually, where they are too good to tank, but they're not really good enough to be a playoff team. And so they're stuck in this limbo. So they mm-hmm. traded away one of their starters to Cleveland, who's like one of these up and coming teams that's like a little bit of ahead of the timeline. 
Yeah, they arrived a little early, so they're making a push for the playoffs. Uh, you like to see owners trying. You know, we talked about it last week. Like, it's kind of it's good. For it's a good sports. thing. Yeah, it's a good thing to see owners say, "All right, we'll take on some extra money to try and win an extra playoff game or two. Um, you know, yeah, you, you have the Bucks who are, I think, they have a pretty realistic path back to the finals. I admittedly am a big fan of Giannis and the Bucks, so maybe I'm letting my uh, emotions take over a little bit there. But oh man, I think it's, it's like what I think Portland the, should be, right? Yeah, I think the Bucks are well constructed in terms of like roster flexibility. They they've kind of pushed all their chips in last year to get Drew Holiday, so like there's there's very little they can do to improve the roster. I mean, it would just be like tiny tweaks around the edges. So I think they might do like a second round pick for a end of the bench guy kind of move but you know nothing that's gonna like make headlines um you mentioned the lakers i don't think i don't think they can do anything i think it's the last year yeah what a shame uh you know the jazz just lost one of their main guys joe ingles to an acl tear which was really oh, unfortunate no. um and so i think they're gonna make a push for somebody to replace him because they also are in kind of that contention tier uh, you know, the Suns and the Warriors, in all honesty, are set. What do like, they need to do? Yeah, like they're everybody's the competing against them. You know what I mean? The Warriors just need to get healthy. They need to get Draymond Green back. But I think there's been very little noise around the Warriors in terms of like they think It'll that they, they think they have the roster to do it. And I yeah. think they I think they do as well as long as they're healthy. Mm -hmm. So I don't see them doing anything. The Suns are have an even better record than the Warrior and they're Warriors clicking they're dominant I mean I don't see anybody getting in their way I mean maybe the Warriors healthy like but between those two teams like I don't see anybody in the West contending against them big market people will hate me saying this but I think a Bucks Suns finals is a very real possibility again I mean don't that's too best don't team. at me if, but <laughs> look I know that Brooklyn is struggling right now since Kyrie came back and Katie's been injured uh, Kevin Durant but if they're healthy if they are healthy which is a big if, big 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 if um, they'll win the east but that's again that's a big if because they have to be healthy to do that right yeah I think the Nets I think this whole James Harden drama is there's probably some truth to it like I, I would not be happy if I came somewhere thinking that it was going to be this big three like the Miami Heat days and it ended up being just me <laughs> and a bunch of yeah. minimum guys. Um, yeah. Because that's essentially what's happening to James Harden during half of the games right now. You know, Kevin Durant is injured for a while. And then Kyrie, with refusing to get vaccinated, is only playing in half of his games. Yeah. And so if and you're James Harden. Players, one of the role players, Joe Harris, too, has been injured. And it's like he's been, yeah. as far as I know, like a pivotal role in their success. So like you said, Harden's kind of, a lot of times out there by himself. Yeah, and I think he's like, this isn't what I signed up for. And I'm a big enough name, a big enough superstar that I can probably force my way out because I did it a year ago. Who's to stop me from doing it again? Yeah. And Daryl yeah, Morey's he... there like waiting. He's waiting eagerly to to try and benefit from that. Harden's always, uh, he he's never happy where he's at though. You know what I mean? I t you got to take it with a grain of salt. He goes everywhere and finds a problem with it. He's been he's been very close to winning, but he's never won. Um, 
and I think that that's probably getting to him at this point. I got to imagine, 100%. He's been on championship teams that haven't won a championship. Yeah. I think he's been in the finals three times. No. Has he? No, he's only been in the finals once. And that once. Was it was just the with Thunder. OKC back in like yeah. 2011, I think. I think That's his only time. His teams have been considered contenders multiple times. Yes. Yeah, I mean, his Houston teams, especially with Chris Paul, like they were always believed to be the best until the Warriors started climbing up and the Clippers came up as well, but they were always like the one that was supposed to supposed to be there and they just they always fell short. Like they just never competed in the playoffs. They never I think they made maybe it made one conference final and for a team like that, like that's it's pretty disappointing. Yeah. So I think part of the reason that there's not more noise is just you don't have a lot of superstars that are on the move. And so a lot of the moves are on the margins and those are the ones that don't usually get leaked as much um just because yeah. like there's not as much it's not, it's not big it's not a big name yeah yeah i think the only player that i'm seeing out there right now is demontis sabonis for he plays for the indiana pacers x uh x zag go zags um uh, he's all-star i mean all-star forward uh offensive powerhouse i think he's averaging i got it right here 19 points 12 rebounds five assists which is a really good stat line uh I don't know. Maybe somebody will go out there and pick him up, add a little bit of offensive um, diversity into their game. Maybe we'll see him go, but I, it feels like that's probably the biggest name uh, that will head before the the deadline, if he even does go anywhere. But outside of that, it's quiet. Looks quiet. Yeah, he's he's an interesting one because like he, his age is kind of right on the fence of the Pacers could rebound around him. Sorry, not rebound. <laughs> Rebuild. Rebuild. Yeah, around like 25. Him. Um, he's young enough, but he's also old enough that they might be like, eh, you know, he doesn't fit the timeline if we're really going to completely rebuild around a bunch of 19 year olds. So I could see them going either way on that one. Um, and I think it's tricky for centers, particularly, to find a market right now because the contenders that you know are going all in to win most of them already have a center um you know you're not going to get the suns or the warriors or the bucks trading for demontis sabonis you're if he gets traded he gets traded to kind of a, a mediocre or a bad team um and so are are those teams really gonna do they see this amazing fit for him if they're a year or two out from contention and and maybe somebody does uh, it's certainly possible, but I think there's there's not a lot of destinations that make a ton of sense for him right now. Yeah, like you said, there's just a, not a lot of, I wouldn't say competitiveness right now, but it seems like teams are kind of stuck where they're at. And yeah, that's and why teams are making moves. Part of that is because there's um, the free agent class this summer is really, really weak. Like it might be the weakest free agent class we've seen in like modern nba history and a lot of people considered last summer to be the worst free agent class and then this is going to be even worse um and it's because the the nature of the game is starting to change where more and more contracts to extensions are being signed early so right. your your pool of free agents and guys that actually wait till free agency is just really decreasing and that that creates you know one argument might say oh that means that if you want to upgrade, you have to do it through trade rather than free agency. 
so the trade deadline should be more active. But then the argument, the other argument would say, like, teams are all, it, it creates less of a imbalance between, like, the buyers and the sellers because everyone is already kind of fill their books because there's no mm-hmm. free agents. Well, not no free agents, but there's there's not a no. lot of good free agents. Like, teams aren't saving their money for anything this summer. Because yeah, for there's... any big pieces or anything like that. Right. So it's like you're going to have to really knock their socks off to get them to part with anything right now because they they don't need to clear money unless you're a small market team like the Blazers and your billionaire is cheap. But that's <laughs> your billionaire. That's, that's a little that's a little that. side. I love that note. phrase. <laughs> I love that phrase. Well, it seems like we've kind of wrapped up any like all the information that's out there about the trade deadline, which. It really isn't a lot. I mean, we spent a lot of time obviously talking about the Blazers, but um, I don't know. Maybe we'll see some fireworks before that Thursday trade deadline, and then we can kind of uh, review that on our next pod. But it seems like that's kind of dried up everything that's out there. It's, I wish it was. I wish there was more news. Yeah, I think there's always deals that surprise you um, every deadline, even if there's not a large quantity. So we'll have something next week to we'll have something to share. Even if it's nothing, we'll be like, yeah, nothing happened. All right. Let's move on to our best and worst sports memories. And this is going to be something that Bobby and I have not even fully talked about ourselves. So this will be a fun kind of surprise for both of us to hear what these memories are. Do you want to go both of us share our best and then both of us share our worst? Yeah, let's do that. Once you once you start, once you start, let's start, um, start with best. I think worst is more uh, emotional. So let's start with best first okay well my my best memory is also emotional and it's a little hard to describe because it's like emotional in like a joyous way but i'm gonna tell you about the only time i've ever cried over a sports game at the end of a sports game i'm I'm loving this all right so back in obviously i'm a big blazers fan and i started following the blazers when brandon roy was drafted he was a shooting guard out of uw local seattle guy a uh, really high character and uh, just a really talented basketball player that won rookie of the year, his rookie year, and then quickly ascended to all-star status. Um, yeah, he was a force. He was fun only, to watch. The only problem with Brandon Roy was that he had bad knees and he got to a point at a very young age where he started losing the cartilage in his knees and it was starting to affect his time on the court, obviously, as basketball is a really hard game on your knees. And essentially, he he uh, in 2010-2011, he dealt with these these knee injuries, and he was being kept out with injury for a large part of the season. And the Blazers just barely skated by for the, the, the whole season to get a playoff spot, and they got matched up in 2011 with the Dallas Mavericks. And as you, if you know NBA history well, you know that that was the title team Mavericks. But the Blazers played them in the first round, and it was a relatively competitive series. Um, Dirk Nowitzki actually said that that was the hardest matchup they had in the West. And I don't know if that was just him being tongue in cheek or if that was uh, true. But, you know, there's somebody on the record saying that it was a tough series that prepared them for the rest of their championship run. But Brandon Roy ended up coming back uh, from injury and playing a little bit in that series. 
because he he was the leader of that team. You know, they had LaMarcus Aldridge, who had to be the focal point when Roy was out, but Roy was definitely like the heart and soul of the team. And he just, he wanted to play so badly, even though his knees were essentially shot. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back for this game five matchup against the Mavericks. It's a best of seven series. Um, and he, coming off of injury, he just has this incredible game where he can't miss. Like he's just on one of those roles where no matter what the defense does, no matter how they match up, switch up, he's just making everything. He's getting to his spots and he's, he's controlling the pace of the game for the entire team. And it was just dramatic shot after dramatic shot after dramatic shot. And it was also a elimination game. So they had to win that game to keep their season alive. And Brandon Roy was just going off. And it it was like a vintage Brandon Roy game where, you know, he, he looked like himself and we hadn't, we as Blazers fans had not seen Brandon Roy as himself in over a year. And so there was a lot of emotion building up in that game and they ended up winning it. It was a very close game. Uh, he had a, a four point play at, at towards the very end of the game and just hit these crazy shots to finally top the Mavericks. And then after the game, you know, all the players run out onto the court and they, they hug him and they're all uh, cheering with him. And you can see Brandon Roy like start to cry. Um, and I, I started crying as well because it was like, it was, this, it was this feeling of this is the player that we all knew he was, that we all deserved to have. And the the world of injuries kind of took him away from us. But And there was also this sense that like this is probably the last time he's ever going to be in this form because that game was probably incredibly hard on his body because he was playing injured essentially. Um, and there, at that point, a lot of us knew his career was probably over and it, and yeah, it was, knew. sounds like he knew. Yeah. And he knew his career was, was close to being over and he came out and he delivered like one of the most incredible playoff performances, uh, in playoff in Portland playoff history. And so it was just, you know, seeing him cry and understanding the context of like what he had gone through the last couple of years with his knees and that that was kind of his grand finale was, was really emotional and so i say it's my best memory um just because it's it's one of the most like vivid and emotionally uh endearing i feel like it's it's an inclusive memory you know what i mean i feel like anybody can watch that and kind of feel the emotion of it and the importance of it that's kind of the beauty of sports too is like uh, it's just the raw emotion of it yeah for sure and especially when you see the players get emotional like because so many times the players like uh, try to brush that off you know but when you yeah, see well, them start to break down then it's like oh wow like you get their life in right it's yeah. everything they've worked for their entire like this is everything that they're about now to come out when you think he probably had these thoughts where it's like i've i'm done and i've been done i will never be back to a state and then be able to show up and like the biggest stage and help his team i mean what an amazing thing yeah so so that's mine let's let's hear yours bobby uh really quick i just looked up i was just curious because i'm not as familiar with that game so that game he scored 24 points and helped his team uh he scored 18 in the fourth quarter 
So that's mm-hmm. tremendous. Scored 18. And at the at one point, the Blazers were down by 23 points in that game. So like there was a lot of drama in that game. So it's a big yeah, storyline. That was the other that's something I forgot to mention. Thanks for catching that. It was a comeback game. And yeah, in the fourth quarter, he he had the ball coming up the court essentially every single play. Yeah, 18. It says 18 out of 35 points. That's crazy. Um, so I am a, and I mentioned this, obviously, I'm a huge Yankees fan. All my, You can tell, obviously, I'm all my, my Twitter handle, Instagram handle. It's all Yankee-infused. Um, I love the Yankees. So naturally, my best memory, and you'll hear my worst memory, are connected to the Yankees. So I've been a fan since I was six years old um so that's what 24 years ago now and when i started watching the yankees were very successful we won a lot of titles in the late 90s and and i was just expected i was expected for us to win i mean like every single year there was no doubt in my mind that we were going to win the world series and when we lost to arizona in 01 like i that was such a strange feeling and then, then the next year we lost to uh, the Anaheim Angels in the divisional round, which is the first round of the playoffs. Like this was a feeling I didn't like. So coming in 2003, I it was different. It was a different. Like you didn't know. Like you didn't expect it. Like of course you wanted it. Um, and as a Yankees fan, like you kind of always expect success. Um, but it was the kind of the first time where you you questioned it a little bit. And so fast forward through the 2003 season. We had a back and forth with the Boston Red Sox. So anybody that knows sports or baseball knows that the Red Sox and the Yankees are the uh, biggest rivalry in baseball. And I would say sports. Um, but what makes a rivalry great is is both teams have to be competitive. You can't have one team just beating up on the other team. And we beat up on the Red Sox for quite a while. And, but slowly through the late 90s, 90s and early 2000s, the Red Sox kept building and getting better and better. And they, got, they brought in Theo Epstein as a GM and their owners. They were all going for it. So in 2003, the Red Sox were a really competitive team. So we beat up on each other throughout the season. And we faced each other in the American League Championship Series. So it's the final two teams in the American League. Whoever wins this series, best of seven games, goes on to play in the World Series. And that series is one of the more memorable series that we have in sports for many reasons, especially the ending. But there's a lot of things that happened. I mean, we alternated winning games. That was the same series that Pedro Martinez threw Don Zimmer to the ground. There was this huge brawl on the field. And one of the games got suspended because of rain. It was just a really abnormal series. And we're going back and forth, winning each and every other game. And so we make it to game seven. It's the final game. And we, Pedro Martinez is on the mound. Pedro Martinez was a powerhouse back in the day. He's so dominant. He was so good. I hate, I hated that guy. Still like kind of don't like him, but that's like probably an unfair bias there. But especially back in the early 2000s, late 90s, he was so good. And going up against him in game seven, like I was, you just weren't sure. You weren't sure as a Yankees fan how it's going to go. And so game starts. Pedro is dominant. They keep chipping away at runs. We're down five to one, I believe, in the, the seventh inning. It's not looking good for us. Pedro's still on the mound. And mind you, this is back in the day where pitchers would go the whole game. Nowadays, pitchers will only go five, six innings at best, and then the bullpen comes in and finishes the game. Back in the early 2000s, a pitcher, starting pitcher, 
was dominating, they'd leave him in the whole game. So you felt like you were suffocated, like you didn't have a chance out of it because this guy's been shutting you down the whole game and it, there's no reprieve in sight. You're not finding anything with him. So we're down five to one. And in the seventh inning, Jason Giambi, big, huge free agent signing that we had in the offseason before there, he'd been struggling really mightily in the playoffs, striking out a lot, not really doing anything. But he comes up in the seventh inning and hits a solo home run to make it 5-2. And I mentioned that because it was a big deal. It was finally kind of a crack in the armor, and you kind of felt like, oh, well, he's given up something here. Maybe maybe we do have a chance. And I really feel like that moment when Jambi hit that home run to make it 5-2 was kind of the turnaround point for us. And so you fast forward to the next inning, the eighth inning. Again, we're down 5-2, and Pedro is in the game. And he starts to show fatigue, gives up a couple hits to Jeter and Matsui and and somebody else. I, I can't remember exactly. And gives up a run. His manager comes out to the mound and you're thinking, OK, they're taking him out of the game. They're going to bring another pitcher in. But they don't. Pedro fights it and he leaves Pedro in the game. So Jorge Posada, the all-time best catcher in my mind for the Yankees, comes up and hits this little bloop, just little bloop, barely gets the bat on the ball, bloop single over the second baseman into center field. It's two-run score, tie game, 5-5. And he's on second base, and he's losing his mind. I'm losing my mind at home. We finally got back into it. It feels like the momentum's going our way. We're at Yankee Stadium, too. That's another thing I should mention. It was in New York. And it was so, so hype. And I was so excited. My brother's sitting next to me. He's a Red Sox fan. And I'm jumping up and down. I'm so excited. I finally got back into it because I felt, I felt that was it. I mean, we're down 5-1 to this, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. It felt like we were out of it. And finally, we were back into it. The game's still tied. Um, we get out of the inning. We don't, we don't get the lead. Go through the ninth. Nobody scores anything. Go through. Now we're into extra innings. We go through the 10th inning. Nobody scores anything. And in the next inning, 11th inning, okay, so Boston's got a bat first. We go, I think, like three up, three down, get through that inning, go to the bottom half. So this is when the Yankees are at bat. And in baseball, in extra innings, if you're the home team and the game is tied and you score a run, the game ends. It's basically sudden death, okay? So in the bottom half of the 11th inning, Aaron Boone, who's their current Yankees manager, was the third baseman back then comes up and he had been batting like I don't even know like below 100 he was non-existent at the plate at that point but they brought in the Red Sox brought in one of their knuckleball pitchers named Tim Wakefield okay if you don't know what knuckleball is it's basically a pitch that's thrown and it has no spin and it just dances around it's really slow but it dances around and it's it's very effective but only like one pitcher in a thousand throws a knuckleball but Tim Wakefield was one of those pitchers, and he was very successful with it. But I remember back in a previous game in the series, when Tim Wakefield was pitching, he threw a pitch, and Aaron Boone, first pitch, hammered it about 400 feet, foul. Home run, but it was foul, didn't count. And I have this in the back of my mind. Okay, so Tim Wakefield on the mound, Aaron Boone at the plate. First pitch, knuckleball, Aaron Boone sends it 350 feet into the left field stands, walk-off home run Yankees win Yankees win the pennant it was just the most emotional moment of my life probably 
I jumped up. I was screaming. I was running around. I was screaming back and forth. I could not believe it. Looking back at the screen, you see Mariano Rivera collapsed on the field, crying. The stadium's rocking and cheering. It was just, it was just the most incredible, exciting moment in sports for me. And when I think back, I was only 12 years old at the time. It, it still stands out as like one of the more emotional moments that I've been through was that that experience and them going to the pennant and they did lose they ended up losing them to the florida marlins in the world series so we didn't we didn't finish it out but like beating the red Sox through that emotional journey of that game was just it was incredible i still think about that it was just raw raw emotion i'm sure that rivalry between the red Sox and the yankees like took another step forward after that oh yeah yeah, which will segue into my next story. But yes, it did. Like that was, it was a jumping off point for that, that rivalry in the mid to early 2000s. All right, we are back. Sorry for the technical difficulties. I was just saying, reacting to Bobby's best moment uh, in sports, Game 7 in the 2003 ALCS. And I was saying there's a lot of aftermath of that game, that drama that happened between the general manager, Theo Epstein, and the uh, the on-field manager, Grady Little of the Red Sox, basically Little disagreed or <laughs> didn't follow orders that came up from, from higher levels saying that Pedro Martinez needed to be taken out in the seventh or after the seventh. Um, and I guess Little told Martinez when he allowed him to go out for the eighth, he said, like, I might, this might cost me my job, but I'm... I'm trusting you essentially to go do this. So just a kind of a, a fun little tidbit about that, that game could have, could have, uh, cost, cost them quite a bit. Yeah, it did too. I mean, they fired him after that, that game. Um, and then they hired Terry Francona right. who ultimately was pretty successful for them. Yeah. He was there a long time, but all right, um, let's move on to our worst memory. So I'll, I'll go first with mine. Mine's a pretty quick one. So I went to Gonzaga as an undergrad and obviously was very invested in their basketball team, followed them closely every March. Sometimes I lose interest in January and February because it's the WCC, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll ignore that. But uh, in 2017... In 2017, they went to their first national championship game, and it was against the North Carolina Tar Heels, who, you know, at the time had Roy Williams, and they were always one of the teams to look out for in the national championship. They had a really strong roster that year, as did Gonzaga. That was probably Gonzaga's best roster to that point. Um, and they were in the national championship game, and it was just one of the ugliest basketball games to watch just from like a viewing standpoint and a basketball standpoint, because the refs blew their whistle at almost everything. Like all, all contact was a foul in that game. And they must have been given instructions before that game to be really, really strict about foul calls because both teams were just getting hammered with fouls and, both teams, I remember watching like their star players or, you know, pivotal players were in foul trouble throughout the entire thing. And it 
I guess it created a lot of suspense if that's what the NCAA was going for, because like I remember just holding my breath of like, did Shemek just pick up his fourth foul, <laughs> you know, um, in like the beginning of the second half. So it was a rough yeah. game to watch. And we all know the outcome is that Gonzaga lost that game in just ugly fashion from both teams. Like neither team really found their groove, but I think Gonzaga in particular, who was such a, a smooth offensive team that whole year, they were very balanced. They, they could not get a field goal. I mean, the only down the stretch, the only thing that they were doing to put points on the board was free throws um, because they were, they were, yeah, everybody was in foul trouble. They were trouble. just getting hacked the whole time, and same thing was happening on the other end, and it was just really ugly to not see anyone be able to make a basket and to go out that way after having, like, such a good season. I mean, it's also painful if somebody wins on a buzzer beater. Like, I'm not going to deny that, but just ugh, that game just left you with such a sick feeling of, like, for both teams. Like, I, I don't... I'm sure UNC fans are super happy about that game. I'll have to ask my friends that root for the Tar Heels, but like, I have to believe that deep down they were also a little sickened by that game because it just wasn't good basketball. So that's my worst memory. Yeah, and you just never know, especially for like a a mid major school, uh, your opportunities to make it to a title game. Like those blue bloods, like UNC and Duke and Kansas and Kentucky, like. They're primed to make Final Four runs all the time. The recruiting is through the roof. They're going to have those opportunities. But for Gonzaga, you just don't know. That was their first title game. Uh, you know, granted, they made another title game, you know, three or four years later. But um, it, you just maybe that was their only opportunity. So it was so tough to see them get so close uh, and not yeah. come through. And you didn't know I definitely didn't again. think they would get to a title game as quick as they did, actually. I was more pessimistic about that, so... Happy to see that it only took four years. my fingers on this year, too. Yeah, maybe two in a row. Um, If you don't know, I'm a huge Gonzaga fan as well. My brother went to Gonzaga. One of my really good friends went to Gonzaga. A lot of times spoke in Washington. I follow the Zags uh, pretty closely. You have two two good friends, Bobby. Go Zags. Three good friends, actually. Or two good friends. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Uh... But I wasn't talking about him. Of course, I was oh, talking okay. about you, John. You're my only good friend yes, from Gonzaga. Your only friend. Yeah. So, nothing to be corrected there. Uh, my worst memory, and I have many. I've been a passionate fan for a long time, but there is one. There's two that stand out. I'll hit on the one that I feel like is a deeper cut. Is the next year after my best memory was 2004, and you know I won't go to <laughs> like. It's history. A lot of people know about this. So we faced the Red Sox in the ALCS again, right, to go to the World Series, okay? And we went up three games to nothing. So what that means is that we only needed to win one game to advance to the World Series, and the Red Sox had to win four straight without losing. It had never happened in baseball. It had never happened in Major League Baseball playoff history that a team came back down 0-3 in a series. And MLB history is long, right? We're talking about 120 years at that point. Never happened 120 years. Well, guess what? The Red Sox did that to us. With a new manager. They won four straight games. Yes, with a new manager, 
and beat us at Yankee Stadium games. They hammered us too. They hammered us in game seven. They were up like 10 nothing in the second or third inning. Game was over. And I felt it. I knew it. I knew in game six that if we didn't win that game, we lost the series. And it was gut-wrenching because in game four and five, okay, this was in Boston, we were winning in the ninth inning with Mariano Rivera, the best closer in baseball history, best playoff closer ever. We were winning by one run, and he blew the lead in both games four and five. If we would have won those games, we'd go to the World Series. He blew the lead in both those games, and the Red Sox won because of David Ortiz in both those games. He got a, he got a home run, he got a walk-off home run in extra innings, and then he got a single. Hall of Famer and David were, Ortiz. Give that man Hall of Famer stripes. David Ortiz. And I knew after those two games that if we didn't win in game six, it was over. And sure enough, game six comes around. I think we were tied late, and then Trot Nixon hits like a two-run home run. They go up 4-2. They're up. They're up two runs on us in the ninth inning. We get three runners on in the ninth inning with two outs. And I, I can I always remember this. Tony Clark, he was our first baseman, comes up, two outs, two runners on. It hits a home run. We go to the World Series, right? Strikes out. And as soon as he struck out, I knew it. Series is over. And sure enough, they kicked our ass in Game 7. And honestly, it's taken me almost this long, whatever this is, 18 years later, to feel comfortable talking about it. I would say in the first decade, I wouldn't even mention it. Uh, it's a really sore subject. It's to be a part of history in that way is brutal. And I think that speaks for itself. I, I mean, I could go into a thousand different details on why that is awful for me, but it is what awful. You, and my other memory. That I was going to say, ahead. like, just real quickly, what do you think it was that the Red Sox like caught on to? Like, do you think that they figured something out? about the Yankees it was purely momentum it was purely momentum we hammered them in the first three games the game three we we beat them 18 to 7 I mean we hammered them and the problem is is we had the opportunity to win in game four and five so I can't say that we played poorly but the problem is is that all of our our big stars Alex Rodriguez um Gary Sheffield at the time Jason Jambi uh, Derek G, Bernie Williams, especially. I mean, he was pivotal. They just stopped hitting. I think collectively, out of those like four players, they got like two hits the rest of the series. Like they just stopped hitting. And it was just a momentum shift. Like they felt it. Like you felt you had something to lose. And they, they, they just felt it falling out of their hands. And I feel like on the Red Sox side, they felt after those two games, especially, they're like, we can do this. We got this. It was purely momentum. I don't think they, there was no strategy, nothing. It was just pure yeah. momentum. All right. What's your other worst memory? Let's make it even more painful for you. Oh, thank you. Um, it was a couple of years ago, 2019, ALCS against the Houston Astros. So uh, famously, the Astros are known that they cheated during this time between at least 27 and this 2019. This was supposedly post stealing um, signals. Because right? that came out in 2019. Come on now. No, no, no. Here, okay, come on now. They got, they got sanctioned off the 2017 season, but we know that they cheated in the following seasons. Like that's that's not news. They, they cheated. They just didn't 100%. cheat with trash cans anymore. Right. They they evolved. <laughs> they evolved their technology. I won't get into that. But anyway, they did cheat, and we faced them. I mean, that was kind of our our rival over the 2017, 18, 19. Was the Astros and 
we just kept meeting them in the playoffs. And they beat us in 2017. It was a seven-game series. It was a good series. In 2019, we we won the first game, and then we lost the next three. So we're down three games to one. We scrapped back in game five to bring the series to 3-2 going back to Houston. So game six in Houston, Astros go up quick on us. They go up 3 up three nothing, and then they... I believe they go up four nothing. We get run back, get another run later in the game off a of Gio Urshela home run. It's four two. We're down two runs going to the ninth inning. Okay, and I'm just hoping. I just feel it because that 2019 Yankees team is one of the better teams we've ever had. We won 103 games that year. We won our division. We were a really really good team in my mind, the best team in baseball. And it just felt like it was it was time. It had been 10 years. It was time for us to win. And I, I really felt that. And I think that's why I was so emotional about this. Where it really felt like we were the best team. We had the best chance to win. And it was going to happen. And so going into game six, we're down again two runs in the ninth. Get a runner on. Okay. Two outs. So we're one out away from losing the series. DJ LeMahieu, my man, the machine, hits a home run ties the game up with two outs and two strikes. And I I just had all this tension and anxiety in me. And it just it just exploded out. It just exploded out. I was it was Hannah's my girlfriend's it was her first real experience dealing with me as a crazy Yankees fan. She was like in the corner, like afraid of like the emotion that was coming out of me. I like we tied it up and I just I was so excited. Because I felt like, okay, now we're going to do it. We're coming back. We're coming back. And I was, again, so anxious and tense before that. And I just finally, like, all that went away. Felt relief. In the bottom half of the ninth inning, because we didn't get the lead, Araldis Chapman, who was a very polarizing closer, but arguably that year was the best closer in baseball. And he comes in, gets the first guy out, no problem. Gets the second guy out, no problem. And then he walks. He walks the third guy. So there's two outs. And Jose Altuve comes up. Gets the first couple pitches. 1-1 one, one count. And for whatever reason, Chapman, who throws a really hard fastball, record speeds fastball. That's what he's known for. He throws really hard. But he does have a slider. Okay, He'll throw it in there as a backdoor slider. He usually doesn't have people chase it in the dirt. But he just tries to get them off balance. 1-1 one, one count. Throws the slider. That's usually a two-strike count. And Altuve sends it into the atmosphere. It's a walk-off home run and beats us. And beats us in the series. And Houston goes on to go to the World Series. And I just laid there. I laid there for probably an hour and a half. I'm not kidding. Like, I know this is so dramatic. This has happened. You can ask Kana about this. I laid in her lap and she consoled me for an hour and a half. It it just was so gut wrenching to go like you went up so like, you were low you went up so high and then it dropped back down almost immediately it was such a roller coaster of emotion and it's really like it felt like we were destined to win and and to go out like that it was it was just so emotional and uh, I still think about that it hurts it just hurts so bad I was, I was I was a shell of myself for a couple days like I really am like an emotional fan. And so that's kind of my other memory that sticks with well, me. Well, unlike the, most. the 2004 story, it sounds like you can talk about the 2019 one three years later. Is that 
Yeah, it took me three years. I, I will say I didn't really talk in about it a year or two after that. It takes some yeah. time. I, uh, I, if, if the Yankees are in the ALCS this year, I really want to be there watching it with you. Because we have not Bro, watched a I'm telling ALCS you right together. I'm not fun to be around. Like, I'm not going to lash out at anybody, but I'm not. I'm just a tense ball of emotion. Oh, stress. That's how I am in the World Series, even if it's not, like, obviously been... Well, the Mariners have not been Mariners in the World Series, but the uh, the Rays, you know, there were some tense moments, uh, but probably not to the same level because you know your Yankees fandom goes goes deeper. I will admit, um, and it's also like Thank the you. the Astros' history is just complicates things. We'll just we'll just say it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it does. So. Yes, it does. Well. Well, I think uh, I think we probably skip garbage time this week. We're running a little long. Um, but do you have anything else you want to add before we, we send no, people I, off? No, I think that that was a great story time. You're a good storyteller. I think we should uh, find some new, f- find some historical games and get that like pitch-by-pitch pitch breakdown from Bobby because I really liked that you remembered uh, it was a 1-1 count <laughs> specifically. I, I remember all those details. I really do. I mean, I remember the things I really care about and mostly the Yankees and baseball, like they stick in my memory for a long time. And I remember the details. They're, it's just, yeah, it's we'll, pictured We'll create the story Painted with Bobby or story time with Bobby segment. But, there uh, we go. <laughs> it could be our YouTube Yeah, I content. think that that's, that's good for today. Next week, we'll probably have some NBA trades to discuss. Hopefully, there's a lot of drama-filled discussion going on throughout the week because that's what I live for during NBA trade deadline week. And hopefully, there's some drama-filled so. uh, discussion in the MLB as well so that we have a little bit more to talk about with the lockout next Some week. movement. Yeah, some progress. We'll see. So, yeah, I hope I hope so. I really hope so. Even just on a personal level, I hope they figure something out this next Root week. Root for drama. <laughs> As well, gives us enough to talk right. about. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today, everyone. And Bobby, thank you. Yes, and uh, again, we're uh, Twitter handles. I am Yankee Six. John is uh, at John Theory. Thorpe Theory. Is that correct? Yeah. Thorpe Theory. Not John Theory. I should know that. Thorpe Theory. Um, yeah, we'll see you guys again next uh, next Monday. Right. Enjoy your Bye. week. Toodles.